You're listening to Sore Sessions with Dr. Chris and Jeff Todd. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Dr. Trish. On this fine, one of the last remaining days of 2019. Getting ready to jump into a new decade. A new decade. 2020. And we're joined by a special guest today. Uh, Mr. Ian Herford is a uh, molecular biology uh, student. He's studying molecular biology at Vanderbilt University. Hi, Ian. Hello, hello. No relation to uh, Dr. Herford. I'm here on my own merit. Uh, hello, everyone. Yeah, he's a uh, legend in his own mind joining us today. <laughs> uh, in our uh, last show of 2019. And uh, we've got a got something interesting to talk about uh, I think we discussed a lot of the um, different topics so far we've discussed medical marijuana which is a new and emerging um, medicine but uh, it's caused us to kind of go back and and look at uh, the past a little bit and when you go back in the history of medicine you find some really interesting things and so we thought we'd uh, discuss some of the uh, previous treatments in medical history that uh, have fallen out of favor. Let's be honest, Jeff. We started thinking about this because you prescribed leech therapy for one of our patients. <laughs> it, was in, it, it was a reasonable treatment for that. <laughs> well, we laugh, but leeches are still used today. There is, it, um, historically, have been used to treat disease, um, but are still used in some in, um, complementary alternative therapies for medicine. These maggots, right? Maggots actually do work, apparently, because they only dead flesh, so they say. You're right. You're right. And the other interesting thing that uh, we'll discuss at some point is we're going to talk about the opioid epidemic. Um, you and I have shied away from it a little bit because it's covered so frequently that we're kind of like, well, what could people really want to hear about the opioid epidemic they don't already hear? Right, and we have some opinions about the epidemic nature of opioids and um, some of the stigma that goes along with opioid use. Uh, recently, I was doing a, a little bit of reading on the op opioid epidemic, and, and really that's part of what led me down the rabbit hole of some of these previous medical treatments in the past, from the past is because we've been through an opioid epidemic before, the exact situation. Not once before, but at least two other times in the... History of our country only. And if you go back into other civilizations, certainly more than that. And it's not just an opioid epidemic. It's the exact same opioid epidemic. We felt like medical professionals felt like we were doing good, prescribed a medication only to come back around and go, oh, that's created some problems that we didn't see coming down the pipe. And now we have problems trying to get people off of off of these medications, and we've done it two other times, at least. Right. I worked with this brilliant Indian physician when I was at Emory, and he basically relayed to me that medicine was cyclical. Diseases were cyclical. They would be eradicated only to, to reappear for some other reason, maybe due to 
immunocompromised conditions of patients. But the same thing with treatments. So the opioid epidemic and some of the treatments we use in medicine, I believe, have been very cyclical as well. We soon forget what we've learned from the past, only to repeat our same mistakes. Um, did you did you write that? This is a <laughs> philosophy podcast, in case you didn't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's on a t-shirt, but it should be. <laughs> Too many words. Nobody would read that much. Definitely a meme. I'm going to put that on my Pinterest page. That, that would make a good <laughs> Pinterest post. You are too much. I don't have Pinterest, but I'm guessing Jeff Todd doesn't either because oh, is, I that, is that what, oh, do I you do. put memes on Pinterest? You can, Ian. I have a <laughs> Pinterest page. His favorite Christmas ornaments. Probably fly fishing. Fly fishing <laughs> page. And it's nothing but pictures of fly, fly rods, fly reels, rod holders. Somehow that's starting to sound dirty. Not safe for work. It <laughs> may violate... Any Pinterest page that Jeff is associated with, you probably should clear your history. I mean, yeah, that's really probably never bad advice, actually, for any web website that I offer up at any point. So looking back at the history of medicine, um, we find some really interesting previous um, treatments that we've done that uh, were under the guise of medicine. You know, we uh, kind of tasked all three of us tasked ourselves with kind of looking at and coming up with what we think is some of the most interesting treatments in the past. And some are really dramatic and some were not so dramatic, but um, all of them seem to not be used anymore. Well, think about medicine. Of course, there's always been disease and infections throughout the history of man or mankind. Um, and even early on with prehistoric records, we realized that there were ways to treat some of these catastrophic injuries or illnesses in both animals and in humans. And then over time, you know, it became more of a chant or witch doctor-ish type treatment. And then that evolved into our modern medicine. Um, but if you think of it that in that historic nature of a disease or an illness caused by something spiritual, either good or bad, then some of the treatments from the past make more sense as bizarre. I was going to say diabolical. That's not the right word. But some were pretty bad. Some were pretty bad. Some of them are, you know, kind in their, in t in their intent. They just were sort of difficult in their execution. The first one that comes to mind when you say that is um, is actually an opioid that gets a lot of press nowadays, and that's really heroin. Heroin and morphine were two of the main painkillers of the day. Yeah, morphine was a, created the Civil War disease, which was not a disease because of the Civil War. It was, you know, people, these soldiers were all injured, and so to treat their injuries, they were given morphine. So we the Civil War disease was actually morphine addiction. And heroin was created to fight that addiction and use, prescribed legally in the United States to treat morphine addictions. Interesting uh, back history on heroin is uh, heroin and aspirin, uh, some, some say that the history gets a little bit confusing, but they're both products of the Bayer Corporation from Germany. And um, a couple of articles state that the same person um, founded both of those. 
the same, same scientist. scientist. So Bear, Bear, the Bear Company actually owned the rights to heroin and distribution of heroin in the United States. Is it the Monsanto people now? Is that I the think, same bear? I think we're going to cut that name out of this. <laughs> yeah, Ian, trying to get us all killed. Uh, should I say that we love or hate Monsanto? Who's going to kill us? It's controversial either yeah, way. We're, we're in St. Louis, and none of us are going to be able to eat anywhere. That's right. <laughs> we went non-GMO. Should we, t- should we talk about Budweiser and how they got bought? <laughs> we need to talk about it. Yeah. Heroin and um, aspirin were both owned by the Bear Corporation, and... And heroin really took off in a way to fight morphine addiction, only to find shortly after using it that it might be actually a little bit more addictive. It was probably a good 25 years. So 25 years of prescribing heroin. And uh, its main indication um, was uh, cough suppressant, which opioids are a very effective cough suppressant. That, That is well known. Very effective, yes. In the 1800s, uh, in the late 1800s, one of the reasons that people had a little trouble with cough was uh, another little illness that was going around at that time, uh, tuberculosis, that caused a little problem with cough. And uh, if you've got a chronic cough related to tuberculosis, a little bit of heroin might take the edge off. So if you didn't die from your TB, you could die from your TB treatment, which is uh, brings us back to medical treatment oddities and heroin being one of those. And so we found out that heroin was not any better than morphine and it was banned. Um, and now is a schedule one drug, much like cannabis. Um, so it has no medicinal use and is highly addictive. Um, I do disagree with the classification of cannabis and as a schedule one drug beyond that. Heroin's gone out of favor, but other opioids have taken place, and we're finding similar um, attributes to opioids for illnesses that we historically have treated with um, pain management using those medicines, only to find out that we've created more Such problems. Such as back and neck pain? Chronic back and neck pain with you know Percocet or Oxycodone, so we know that there's the statistics or the data or the clinical studies don't support the use of opioids for chronic pain, yet they're still prescribed. And at least we're moving in a direction um, in which physicians are employing alternative treatments to chronic pain with some success. And there may or may not be a role for pain medications for some of those patients. So, but we digress that is definitely a topic we'll have to cover in a future podcast let's go to the time of the ancient egyptians Ooh, take us back all right you're in the middle east oh yeah pyramids are built and yeah you open your door look up at your pyramid there it is beautiful pyramid and all is very nice hieroglyphics the aliens that built the pyramids have left (laughs) dang it we'll miss but they left us a really nice landmark and let's say your neighbor comes over and they're stark raving mad. One of the treatments of the day was a practice called bloodletting. Now, Dr. Herford, what are your thoughts about the practice of bloodletting? Well, there's still some indication for bloodletting for certain disease states, polycythemia currently, but bloodletting for hysteria or ancient illnesses or infections may have actually improved 
their condition to some degree. So if you have somebody who's stark raving mad and you bloodlet enough, they'll pass out. All bleeding stops eventually. <laughs> All bleeding cures whatever illness was there, maybe permanently, the illness of life. But so if you bloodlet enough, I suspect you would get some improvement. Bloodletting for an infection might be beneficial as well. So for ancient medical treatment, it's an interesting approach, which demonstrated some positive effects because they kept doing it, and they did it for centuries. So how does it work with infection? That's surprised. Do you know? So if you um, have an abscess, which is a pocket of an infection, if you um, would release that um, pustule component and that happened to be the area chosen for your bloodletting, you may in fact have just treated the abscess with an incision and drainage, which could be helpful. Um, there is also some stimulation to the immune response in a body to fight whatever with um, your blood. So all your white blood cells um, are contained in your in your blood and the white blood cells fight infection. So if you bloodlet and you stimulated the body to produce more cells, you might in fact be stimulating more vigorous immune response. I don't think th- that makes a lot of sense in modern day time, but it, in past times it may have been helpful. Are you familiar with a procedure known as trepanation? I've heard this only because you love that word, number Trepanation one. Trepanation was the act. Um, it is considered the oldest form of surgery, by the way. Oh, I did not know that. Possibly 7,000 years old. So, Ian, do you know what trepanation is? Could you just, in your own words, tell us what you think trepanation is? I would say first thing is the first axiom of ancient surgery. You should have trepidation about trepanation. Because I believe it is boring a hole, technically anywhere, but typically in the skull, to uh, help. And then sometimes you dig around and pull some brain out with you. The only way to make a person better is to get the evil spirits out. There's a lot of evil spirits and a lot of minds out there. (laughs) Maybe we should reinstitute trepanation. Well, you did start the show with saying that medicine, treatments, and problems... Are cyclical, cyclical. so maybe we're about ready to bring it back. (laughs) Bring it back. So, announcing today, the St. Louis Trepanation Center is opening for business in 2020. (laughs) We can train you. (laughs) You're going to feel a little pinch. It would be interesting because you wouldn't expect that to be very painful. You can operate, and once you get through that skull, that, you know, that the bone, sensory component of bone, I suspect you wouldn't be that painful. Yeah, but how they get through with a rock? It's a sharp stick. But it's a sterile stick, which is really the interesting part of all these ancient surgeries and a lot of these previous medical things is there was absolutely no sterility at any of this. And so if it wasn't the procedure that actually killed you, it was probably the infection that came along with it. And there are some doctors, I remember this in our history of medicine course, they really were against this germ treatment, anti-germ treatment where washing your hands became very popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they sort of fought against it. It's all fooey. It was fooey. Back then, they were probably some guy in his powdered wig saying, this Generation B, they're very annoying. 
with their stupid germ theory. <laughs> I've been doing this a hundred years. They want to wash their hands all the time. <laughs> That's exactly right. Interesting connection to germ. This germ theory that comes up is uh, actually Listerine. The history of Listerine, in case anyone listening doesn't know, which why would you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm laying in bed at night and I go, wow. Let me think about the history of Listerine. Yeah, I mean, you did Colgate the night before, so let's... It kind of flows. Yeah, I get you. See? So sit back, kids, and let me educate you on the history of Listerine. Grandpa Jeff, go. Listerine is named after a man who was a doctor who really believed in germ theory and really um, was an advocate for uh, washing your hands, that very scientific principle of maybe we should wash our hands in between all of these surgeries that we're doing and maybe people won't get sick which incidentally was actually proven quite commonly they they proved that if you just washed your hands you could reduce the risk of mortality so listerine was designed as a hand antiseptic but uh, as you alluded to a lot of people didn't buy into the whole germ theory they didn't think it was necessary And so the company was actually facing some pretty significant financial troubles. And one of the things they started using it for was a mouthwash. For halitosis. For halitosis. Which is a made-up word, you told me. Completely is made up. It is actually, to this day, still um, a marketing term called the Listerine effect, which is a marketing term in which companies design a word or a term that invokes fear therefore you purchase a product because you're afraid of whatever the effect is of the the opposite of not using their product i'm afraid of halitosis so halitosis was a completely made up word by the listerine company they propagated the word halitosis because it created a disease-like state and so people were afraid of the quote disease of halitosis and they did not want to get infected with it. Therefore, you use Listerine and that eliminated the germs that cause bad breath. And to this day, it is one of the marketing principles that a lot of marketing firms So teach. Listerine was created for hands as a hand sanitizer initially? That is correct. Absolutely incredible. Should we tell them about the Chilean sea bass? Yes, that's important to know. So just real quick, Listerine effect. Uh, and I don't know. More recently, the Chilean sea bass, if you see it on a menu, don't be fooled. It's the Patagonian toothfish. They just changed the name because it wasn't selling very well. Because people would prefer Chilean sea bass over the Patagonian toothfish. He speaks the truth. That's brilliant. Isn't it? I kind of respect it. I mean, I don't really want to order toothfish tonight. I'd rather have sea bass. Chilean sea bass. Oh, boy. So. We, we still got to get to a lot of good ones. I know. Animal dung. Using poop from your pets. Packing, packing an injury with poop. No way. Ian, what could possibly go wrong with that? I just wonder what they were thinking when that came about. Like, you just see that. Why would you let somebody do that to you? That's my, the priest is like, hey, let's put some poop in there. I'm be like, you know what, chief? How about not? Well, you're really sick. You may not be able to fight off the poop. I got to tell you, Margaret, every time you get a cold, you smell like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, nice, nicely done. Oh, too much. But again, interesting. We go back. Medicine cyclical. What are we doing with fecal now? Fecal transplants. Fecal transplants. We are doing fecal transplants, and they work for the 
Clostridium difficile infections that can that lead to you know prolonged hospitalizations or death, particularly in elderly people, um, when the gut is wiped out of normal flora that is somewhat protective, and you have an overabundance of a gut bacteria that leads to profound diarrhea. So people become dehydrated, lose weight, um, and even you know can pass away. They found that if you repopulate the gut with normal gut flora from fecal material of somebody who's healthy, you can cure that disease with no other medications. And 95-plus percent of patients treated that way. So there's the cyclical nature of poop. It all comes back to poop. Let's go into um, treatment of infections. And we knew at some point washing your hands was important, but they also found out that the longer a wound or a surgery would take, the more it hurt, number one, and they didn't have a lot of great or available painkillers. And number two, they were more likely to suffer infections. So surgeons um, at the turn of the century really worked hard to be fast. And so they had the, quote, beat the clock method of uh, treating patients. So they would have their associates time them. And so some of these surgeons were so fast, they could amputate a limb in less than a minute. So their patients who didn't have any anesthesia could tolerate a minute of that type of pain, and they were less likely to develop a wound infection postoperatively. But when they did that, sometimes these surgeons were so fast that they cut off the fingers of their, their assistants. You should, do, you have, do you have it readily available, the little story? With this guy who was, who was trying to set a record, or at least go really, really fast. I do. So, his name was Dr. Robert Liston, and he could amputate a limb in under a minute. In 1847, he was able to remove a 45-pound scrotal tumor in under four minutes. Um, sometimes he worked too fast, and he once operated on a gangrenous leg. And according to his biographer, the patient... Um, who did ultimately die of an infection, which wasn't that unusual. However, during that procedure, Dr. Liston cut the fingers off of his assistant and slashed through the clothing of a spectator, who then also proceeded to drop dead from fright. (laughs) Ah, the good old days. The good old days. Didn't wash your hands. Get smoke in the operating room. Being a doctor meant something. It really did. Dr. Herford, are you familiar with the term... Hysterical. I am. Is that because you are a female? No. I beg to differ. (laughs) (laughs) According to the ancient Greeks and Romans, it's actually all because you're a female. Really? Yes. Ian, enlighten us on why this is so. Hysterectomy. And what is a hysterectomy? It's a removal of the uterus. And that is exactly what hysteros means in ancient Greek, the womb. And so basically they thought that the they thought that women were just a little bit crazy, maybe a lot bit crazy sometimes, and that was a result of their womb. And that is why hysteria, which is craziness, and hysterectomy both are about the womb. The wandering womb, as it was known. Has this ever affected you? Sometimes a little bit north, a little bit left. Well, they used to think that women who were hysterical were starved for affection. It was because our uterus, uteri, 
our own wombs were angled or pointed in the wrong direction or had floated into areas of our bodies that they shouldn't go to, which is interesting. So it was like the womb was an animal just kind of traipsing around inside of us, <laughs> causing... Did you, did you see that? Did you read that article where it said how um, sometimes certain traits were attributed with the womb going too high, so they'd put nice-smelling fragrance, fragrances on the vagina to bring the womb back down to where it was supposed to be. Well, the more interesting part is sometimes they would prescribe sex to bring that womb right back into place. I'm like, I'm thinking the doctor felt like that was a cure that only he could deliver. Yeah, it has to happen right now. Now we have, now we have rules. Time sensitive. Don't blame me. Blame Hippocrates. He told me to do it. First, do no harm. (laughs) Demi sex for a wandering womb. There's actually medical poems about that. All right. Have you ever wanted to make out as part of your cure? How about Babylonian skull cure? A make out? This was the best. This was my favorite of the so list. So tell us about a Babylonian skull cure. So they thought a lot of the uh, afflictions of life, or at least medical afflictions, were a result of ghosts in the afterlife. And so you know, if something was wrong with your head, they'd have you sleep with a skull. Um because they felt that your ancestors were trying to mess with you or something. So they put a, a skull next to you, uh, and you'd have to sleep next to this skull for a week. Um, and then to make sure that, you know, you really got the proper dosage of drug, you had to lick and kiss the skull Ugh. seven times every night before you went to bed so with So if that was truly an effective cure for disease, Jeffrey Dahmer should be <laughs> would have been super healthy. Well, he probably was right up until he died from... Lethal injection. No, he got beat up in a bathroom stall in prison. Died. I'm sorry, I'm not up to date on my serial killer demise. <laughs> like somebody. Oh yeah. Don't worry. There's an expert yes, here. One of us is a little fascinated with serial killers. Creepy. <laughs> Who was the cucumber guy? Bob Berdella. He was out of Kansas City. <laughs> yes. so yeah, just drop that. <laughs> Move on. My eyes are are large with wonderment. I did not know that. Dr. Trish was uh, an authority on the history of serial killers. Oh, she she truly is, though, actually, yes. I have a serial killer encyclopedia at home. No joke. Honestly, you're a scary person. I don't practice serial killing. As far as you know. <laughs> Not anymore. Not. Let's go, as a parent, we can talk about my own experience with ancient medicine, and my dad used to practice it all the time. It's called counter-irritation. Now, in ancient times, it's really kind of gross what what they would do to distract patients from whatever ill they were suffering from. But I remember growing up, my father would say, grab the hammer if we ever complained about something hurting. And we would look at him and he'd say, if I hit your thumb with the hammer, whatever you're complaining of, we won't complain about anymore because it won't bother you which was the whole effect of counter-irritation. But in ancient times, they used to make a wound small enough that wasn't too bad, but big enough that they could stuff things in it and create an infection, a pocket of infection, to distract patients away from whatever ailment they were complaining of. And you think your headache's bad. Wait till I give you your your abdominal abscess. Put animal dung in there. (laughs) Or your trepanation with animal dung used as a counter-irritation method to treat the wandering womb. That whole treatment's <laughs> full of shit. You were waiting to say that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, he was. 
It was a good job, though. <laughs> it was sitting there. All right. So we've covered a lot of the primitive, prehistoric, ancient, and then not so ancient, crazy oddities in medical treatment from the past. And there are many more out there. We just were entertained our, our, a bit ourselves with many of these. There's so much more. There's so much more. Should we, should we talk about Benjamin Rush real quick? This guy was fast. His wi- Just check out his Wikipedia page if you get the chance. Benjamin Rush, the first Surgeon General of the United States, I believe. Wow. He did sign the Declaration of Independence. I know that. Yeah, he was a, he was a big deal. Right below Herbie Hancock? <laughs> Herbie Hancock's a musician. No, he signed Declaration of Opinion. Big name. He's got a big building in Boston, I think. The Herbie Hancock Tower. There you go. <laughs> anyway, this Benjamin Rush fellow was a practicer or a practitioner of something called heroic medicine, which is such a cool name. and basically means if you have a problem, they would try to give your body so many other problems. It was in a state of extraordinarily high stress. So that's, for example, I mean, I think bloodletting was one of those things. They'd try to give you fevers. Um, it was tough. It was tough times back then, to be honest. They embraced the whole pain and suffering. Yeah, concept. there was um, no pain, no gain, I guess. Yeah, he would do awful things like make wounds on people and then pour acid into them. Again, the more pain that you and suffering you had, the more likely you were to be cured of your ailment. But those were for, wasn't that primarily psychiatric disorders? He was one of the first, he was, he's considered a founder of psychiatry, but I think they did it for other things as well. I mean, I feel like there was a lot of one size fits all treatments back then. Like here, let's take some blood out, see what happens. What about Benjamin Rush's tranquilizer chair. Did you read about that? No, I did not. The tranquilizer chair um, was actually used all over the world. Basically, what he would do is they would restrain a patient's hands and feet and then cover their heads with a wooden box that uh, had a hole cut in the bottom for bodily functions. And then they he would starve and verbally <laughs> abuse all the patients and pour acid on their backs after he cut, made cuts on them. Um and sometimes he would do those, keep those wounds open for months or even years to facilitate their recovery. That is so horrific. Horrific. Not heroic, but horrific. Horrific medicine, that's right. Well, he was also known as a strong advocate for the humane treatment of the mental, uh, mentally ill. And he still adorns the seal for the American Psychiatric Association. Here's a guy who employed these really <laughs> horrific treatments, but he was definitely for the humane treatment of people. He used to also spin his patients around the twirling thing. He would hang patients and then spin them, spin them, spin them. Thinking that way. Like the ride at Silver Dollar City. He gets stuck to the wall. There you have it, folks. There is a uh, brief history of some of the most odd medical treatments from the past. We promise not to prescribe those in the sore medical clinic. Look, if you think they've got it all figured out by now, think again. That's right. What are they going to say 100 years from now? Exactly. Some of the things that we've done, they used to stick needles in people's backs and deliver steroids. Animals. Can you believe that? Savages. (laughs) Terrible. (laughs) And they thought that cured people. Makes me sick. What cyclical thing will come back, though? Will bloodletting... Something will come back. Right. We've seen it. So it's going to be the vegans. They're, they're the one, you know, 
So natural and holistic. Animal dung, it's the best for you. That's the only good, that's the only animal product you can use. (laughs) We make our new vegan burgers (laughs) with animal dung. I guess we're seeing that somehow with like uh, some of these animal proteins that are coming out like uh, insects and that are making a, they're trying to make these sustainable food sources for these third world countries and insects and crickets. Potential there. Talk to this gentleman. Right across the table. I would I would love to eat. And that's a goal of mine, to eat bugs. I mean, I've eaten bugs, but not on purpose. I'd like to eat a culinarily prepared How bug. about a sautéed cricket? I think they get roasted a lot. Well, you could do it like, you know, you bake kale, kale leaves. You could bake your cricket legs. Seems like it might be a little squishy, but I don't know. I contend that anything with enough butter or deep fried will probably taste well. I'm sure with all the deep fried food we've consumed in this room, we've probably had a couple of cricket legs in there. That's definitely true. Uh, so we wrapped up a, another awesome But we do have session. a guest. Yes, we do. And you, we know what that means. That means it's time for Getting Hammered. With Dr. Trish and Jeff. guest today, Ian Herford, you are about to get hammered. Have you ever been hammered, Ian? Um, no, I did not know this was coming either. So Five questions, Ian. Answer them truthfully with the first thing that comes to your mind. You don't have to put a lot of thought into it. It's not, uh, this is not a college entrance exam. This is just a simple question and answer session. Do you want a, you want a one word answer? You can elaborate as necessary. So far, the goal is to come up with better answers than Dr. Trish has provided. Mine were amazing. (laughs) That was an auditory explanation of her answers. (laughs) Question number one. If you could be any animal, what would it be and why? Uh, I would be some type of eagle. In fact, I think it's called the African eagle because that's the one that can fly the furthest distance, but it still kind of looks like a badass. I made that decision, I think, in the second grade, and I stick with it because I want to be able to fly. You would not be the Patagonian toothfish? No. My runner-up is an elephant because I think they're awesome, but like, how could you pass down the opportunity to fly? That is a well-thought-out, excellent answer. He thought about it in second grade. All right, question number two. What is the strangest thing you've ever eaten? Uh, a cow placenta. It was a part of a placenta soup. Was it a wandering placenta? Um. It had it wandered into my spoon, I guess. That's I disgusting. Know. Why was that served? Was there a purpose to placenta on the menu that day? Um, I mean, you know, the good old Ecuadorians that use every part of the, the cow. It's like our Native American friends with the buffalo, I guess. Question number three. If you won a million dollars, what would you buy? I feel like a million dollars in my head used to be so much more money than it is now. Now it's like, what would I buy? That would last me a year. No, I don't know. De- uh, definitely a super nice car, though. Maybe that's... I just got my first car ever about four months ago, so I'm kind of on that wave, and I would... If I could get a super amazing... Uh, yeah, I know now. This is way less than a million dollars, but a Porsche 911, stay shift. Like, oh, I just think those are just so beautiful and cool. That's my dream car, and I will own one one day, but if that day is tomorrow... So be it. And I guess I put the rest in the bank, maybe by boat. I don't know. I love that boy. The boat part. Question number four. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Whoa. I'm really, 
I take questions like this seriously, so I want to give it the right answer. But I guess my uh, my initial impression, well, gosh, that's so tough. That's really so tough. My initial thought, though, was Donald Trump, just because really I want to be in his head, though. That's what I want. I don't really want to be in his body. I want to be in his head. Is that is that a fair answer? I just want to see how that, what is actually going on in there? Because you get a lot of different opinions on that. <laughs> I would love to know. He's probably happy. I mean, there's not room for two people in there. I actually disagree. I think inside his head, there's a lot of room. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's very empty. I'd be the only one there. There's a, it's a big head. There's a lot of space there. Question number five. Where would you go if you were invisible? Where would I go if I was invisible? Uh, some what's the hardest uh, probably the chinese communist party headquarters or something putin's bedroom putin's bedroom. that's not just something that you wouldn't be able to do at all otherwise master spy bedroom. type stuff he said that i mean that's <sighs> i mean does that sound weird i mean putin's like putin's headquarters well not like in a weird way but like his headquarters wherever his the most secret built uh, room in the kremlin maybe i don't know. i did say bedroom i meant a private place but not private in that manner okay that's a that's an interesting question. I'm glad I'm not invisible though. I don't know what I'd do with that power, but I think I would not use it for good. But uh, time is cyclical. I don't know if you know this, but uh, medicines come and go, and yet the human condition remains yet unchanged. <laughs> <laughs> the world is in good hands. The future is safe. Ian Herford is on his way. Well, Ian, five questions. You have officially been hammered Dun -dun -dun. with good answers. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you a rating of a. A minus on a those minus. answers. That was generous, Seriously. but great inflation is a real thing. So you, thank you, you. Too high, too low. That was too high. Too high. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Tough. Yeah. I mean, nothing can come come quite close to the uh, amazingness of the answer to the question. Your Dr. Herford had the the question: if you could have any superpower, and why? And her answer was, um, I wish that I could speak all languages. <laughs> And she said, then she followed it up with, because I'm already fast enough, so I don't <laughs> super beast. speed. An absolute legend sitting at the table. That's Dr. Herford, a.k.a. The Flash. Well, there you have it, folks. Sore sessions. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Dr. Trish. Thank you, Ian. It was very fun. Thanks for having me. It felt good to be hammered. It's been great talking to you, Ian. Until next time, everyone, have a happy and healthy 2020. A new decade of medicine.